You have all probably experienced buyer's remorse before. I know I have. You know, when you buy something and then later on you regret purchasing what you bought. But have you ever experienced seller's remorse before? You might say, well, I didn't know that was a thing. And maybe, maybe it's not. It's definitely a rarer thing. But we do sometimes regret having sold certain things to other people. Say you sell something on Kijiji or Craigslist or at a yard sale. Or you trade in your used car for far less than what you paid for it. Or you sell your house, which someone then flips for thousands more. Or you sell something precious to you at a pawn shop for some cash. And later on you think, oh, I wish I hadn't sold that for whatever reason. Now, most of the time when that happens, if you actually try to buy back what you sold, what happens? Right? If you can even get your hands back on it, it'll cost you much more than what you sold it for. Right? You, you see the jewelry in the pawn shop, or you see the car on the car lot, or you see your house on the market, and they marked up the price substantially in order to make a profit. So if you want to buy back what you sold, it's going to cost you a pretty penny. Well, I want to inform you this morning that in your life, something has been sold, which you probably deeply regret selling. And if not, you should. Because what we have all sold isn't a house or a car or a ring. We have sold ourselves. We have sold ourselves basically into slavery, into to sin, the devil, into the world's clutches. And whatever was offered us in return, I guarantee you it wasn't worth it. But here's the question. What do you think it would cost to buy back people? What do you think it costs to buy back people? What's the price that's been slapped onto our souls? I'll tell you this. It is a very high cost. In fact, one that we could never afford to pay. To buy us back costs far more than what we sold ourselves for. But it is a cost that ultimately has been paid in full. And when we see the price that was paid for us, it should show us how loved we really are. We might not feel very precious at times, but we are precious to the one who bought us. I think we can see this really unthinkable, irresistible love displayed in God's word for us today. Or I should say we'll see it demonstrated in a, in a powerful ancient story of redemption. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hosea. If you're using one of the Bibles you find around you, that's on page 752. Hosea will be in chapter 3, starting today. The past couple weeks, we've been learning about the prophet Hosea, along with his highly unusual wife and his bizarrely named kids. At God's command, Hosea had married Gomer, a promiscuous prostitute of some kind. And then they had three kids, 
whose names really were omens of God's judgment on Israel. The judgment which was coming because God's people had strayed on him like a whore strays. That's his words, not mine. However, right when the forecast of doom got the darkest, God reversed everything. Stunningly reversed everything. He reaffirmed his his covenant love for his people and promised to show them mercy. He said he was going to pursue them, to allure them, romance them, marry them. And he promised to pour rich blessings onto his people. The very end of chapter 2, it said this, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I'm going to plant a people in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, he shall respond, you are my God. The first two chapters, Hosea painted us a gorgeous picture of God's eternal and merciful love in the face of our constant unfaithfulness. And in case we still didn't realize how relentless His love is for us, He does it all again in chapter 3. But before we dive into here, I'd like us to pray together once more. So please, if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we come to your word and we recognize that we need you. We need your truth in our lives. We need your help to understand your truth. We need your spirit to convict us, to grow us, to teach us all truth. So we pray that you would do that for us today, God. We pray that you would humble us if we need humbled and then that you would lift our heads and show us your incredible mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hosea himself, the prophet, resumes speaking in the first person in chapter 3. In verse 1 it says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now that will sound very familiar to those of you who are with us the past couple weeks. But it's also different. Hosea wasn't told to marry someone, but to love someone. Love someone again. Go again, love a woman. And so, and even this, though this woman is not named, this has to be speaking about his wife, Gomer, because we know the story behind it, but we can see right away that their marriage has gone into a bit of a tailspin, to put it lightly. Look how Gomer is described. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So, in this verse, she remains nameless and titleless, just a woman. Almost as if she has forfeited both her identity and her position as Hosea's wife. How'd she do that? It says that she was loved by another man. And, and this means that she had abandoned her husband, likely her children well. She had strayed from her marriage, let herself be wooed by another lover, to the point that she officially committed adultery. She became an adulteress. It says. Gomer really, she had just fallen back into her old way of life from before Hosea had come along. 
Her demons came back to haunt her. Her promiscuity came roaring back. Now, I want you to imagine what you would do if Hosea was one of your present-day friends. All right? Imagine if one of your friends was married to a woman like this. What advice would you give him? I'm sure most of us probably would have told him to not get married to her in the first place, right? And warning him that something like this was bound to happen. But at this point, I doubt many of us would be saying, I told you so, right? Because your friend would be hurting big time, feeling betrayed, abandoned, spurned. Now, I think if, if we were in these shoes... We would comfort them, of course, and while we're comforting, we'd probably be pretty angry. Right? You've got to lose this girl for good. Right? And she, you've got to get out of this marriage. She's not worth it. She left you. Take your kids and run. Get out. I mean, even as a Christian who believes that the Bible is almost universally against divorce, I'd be right there too. Right? Adultery in the Bible is possibly the only biblical grounds for divorce. And so I believe Gomer would have had every right to cut off his marriage with a good riddance. Gomer forfeited any right she had to Hosea's love. And yet God told him, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Our advice wasn't God's instructions for Hosea. And thank goodness for that. Because you may not realize, but in this story, we are essentially Gomer. Gomer parallels God's people who had been unfaithful to him. And therefore, Hosea was playing the part of God in this real-life analogy. Look again. I'll continue on through the rest of verse 1. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Look, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, we'll, we'll get back to that peculiar reference to cakes of raisins shortly. But the word love is repeated four times in that one verse. Love, 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 love. Obviously hinting at the point of the story. And just like Hosea demonstrated God's covenant love initially by marrying a whore, he was again to publicly demonstrate God's love by remaining faithful to an adulteress. Hosea's experience is supposed to help us see God's point of view. To feel God's experience, his ongoing experience with his people. God tells him, go love a woman even as the Lord loves his people. So for today, we're going to seek to answer the question, what is God's love actually like? What is God's love actually like? And I think we will find four powerful answers from the ensuing story, brief story. Here's the first one. Very simply, God's love loves despite us. 
Even despite our severe shortcomings, God still loves his people. His love loves us despite us. Hosea was told to love his wife, even though she didn't deserve the love one bit. Even though she apparently no longer loved him, if she ever had. Even though she was actively committing adultery against him with another man. There's no glossing over the unpleasant details of the situation. Hosea had undoubtedly been hurt spurned, and wounds would have to be reopened by doing this. He'd have to take the risk of something like this happening all over again. She obviously had a propensity towards this full kind of lifestyle. Additionally, as you can see, the adultery was still in progress, even as God spoke. Love a woman who is loved by another man. This is in progress. Hosea would have had to go to this other man's house to retrieve his wife. Who knows how he would have found them when he got to the door. Finally, Hosea had no assurance that Gomer would willingly leave with him. I mean, I imagine she would have been resistant to the idea, to say the least. Derek Kinder says, The love that was asked of Hosea would be heroic. But that was the point, for it was to be God's love in miniature. This is what God had done for Israel, his people. And so Hosea would imitate that. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, may cock your eyebrows at that. What is, what's all this about raisin cakes? I mean, that seems really random. Is that a long lost 11th commandment? Thou shalt not eat any cakes with raisins in them. <laughs> Who knew? Now, I may personally think that putting raisins in just about anything is wrong, but that's, but that's besides the point. We don't actually know the story behind the raisin cakes here. We can speculate. Uh, raisin cakes certainly weren't inherently evil. So we can, we can pretty much guarantee that we can surmise that they were being used in some evil context or setting. Most likely as parts of the worship of the false gods that they talk about. They turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, God was probably using the, the cakes of raisins as a, a euphemism for Israel's idolatry as a whole. It would be like, a couple modern examples would be my, like me saying using medical clinics as a substitution for abortion. Or saying that we love magazines or websites when what we really love is porn. That kind of idea. Something neutral but used to talk about something really bad. But don't get distracted from the main point of this verse. Okay, Even though Israel was engaging in blatant idolatry, God still loved them. You saw that, right? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Even though Israel had fallen this far, God still loved them. Likewise, the Lord still loves us, despite us. He loves us despite our 
lack of love for Him and our fervent love for many other things. He loves us despite our obsessions with our educations and our occupations and our hobbies and our retirements. He loves us despite our sinful fantasies and our sexual failings. He loves us despite our angry, spiteful, or hateful words. Despite our fits of rage. He loves us despite our greed, despite our jealousy, despite our lying, our hatred, our disobedience, our pride. We may not even be consciously rebelling against God. We may just be in it for the cake. We, you may be in whatever sin you are in because of what that sin has promised you. The fun, the pleasure, the excitement, the popularity, the status, the raise or promotion, the wealth, the power, the freedom, the toys, the peace of heart, the quiet, the, the superiority. What... What cakes of raisins might we be pursuing at the expense of loving God? Whatever they may be, know this with absolute certainty. God still loves you despite them. If you doubt that, just wait till you see how God proves his love for us. We can see this shadowed in the way Hosea loved his wife. Look at verse 2, where Hosea obeys God's command, right after he says what to do. So, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. If Hosea's love shows us God's love, what does this action that he just took show us about God's love? Simply this. That God's love pays to redeem us. Despite our sin, God's love pays the cost to redeem us from sin. God's love pays to redeem us. So I bought her. Now we, we sometimes use the word redeem or redemption as synonyms for save or salvation. But redemption really is a financial term which refers to one particular aspect of salvation, the buying back of people. That's what God does when he redeems us. He buys us back. And the word redeem doesn't show up here in Hosea, but the act of redemption certainly does. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. So Hosea bought his wife in order to bring her back with him. Kidner says, in the single word bought, we learned how far she had fallen, how tightly she was held, and what was the first step Hosea must take to fulfill the command to love her. Now, we don't know why exactly he had to buy her back. It doesn't tell us. Did she have debts that she needed to have paid? Had she fallen into slavery of some kind? Perhaps this was sex slavery, and as a prostitute, her pimp had to be paid off. 
Maybe Hosea had to give some kind of compensation to her boyfriend. We don't know. But what we do know is that Hosea paid a steep cost to redeem her. It says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. This has been estimated to be about half a pound of silver and as much as 450 pounds of barley. And it's interesting that the fact that Hosea paid in both money and grain together could imply that he wasn't able to afford the full financial cost of buying her back. Prophecy wasn't exactly a lucrative career choice. So Hosea had to to haggle, to to scrape together a payment consisting of silver and barley together. And it cost him a fortune to buy back Gomer from whatever predicament she had got herself into. Like I said earlier, buying something back almost always costs more than it was sold for. Think about it. How much do you think Gomer had received from her lover? She may have sold herself for some money, some meals, some pleasure. But I'll bet you anything she didn't get much in return for selling herself. Hosea had to give far more to buy her back. And this principle is most vividly displayed in what God paid to get his people back. Is he paid in the life and the blood of his only beloved son, Jesus Christ? We sold ourselves for the pennies and the cakes that sin offered us. But Christ bought us back at the expense of his own life. In his death, he paid in pain, he paid in sorrow. He paid in mockery, in betrayal. He paid in humiliation. He paid in abandonment, in God-forsakenness. In other words, he paid in the currency of everything we deserve. And when he paid, he paid the cost in full. So we now owe nothing. Ephesians 1, 7-8 says, In Him we have redemption. There's the word. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Redemption is now available to everyone, even you, even me, because of how Jesus paid for us. Because of the blood of Christ, we can be freed from our sin and all its consequences. However, there are ramifications that go along with being redeemed. When God redeems us, we become his rightful possessions. And he begins changing us. As our story continues, what we'll learn is this, that God's love 
makes rightful demands of us. Once we're redeemed by God's love, His love then makes rightful demands of us on our lives. Again, Hosea illustrates this point in his story. You hear this aspect of God's love as He made demands of His recently bought back wife in verse 3. Look at it with me. And it says, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, these demands are eminently reasonable. Okay? She was his lawfully wedded wife, after all. And more than that, even, since he had just bought her in a legal transaction, she was now legally his possession. Now, in our modern mindsets, that might get us all worked up and offended over that. But don't, because God wasn't condoning either chauvinism or slavery here, in the least. I'll tell you this. If you were an ancient sex slave, you'd want to be bought by someone who'd set you free too. Hosea ultimately was setting his wife free. And, and really, a husband insisting that his wife be faithful? That's hardly oppressive. But Hosea's act of redemption had bought him the right to make some demands. Since he was now both technically her husband and her master, he could now say this. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In other words, live with me. Be my wife. Stop sleeping around. Now, in case that sounds cold to you, remember that despite Hosea's pain, he had stooped to love her anyway. He had saved her from probable slavery and was attempting to win her heart back. This wasn't cold. Hosea was both making demands as her legal master and pledging his love for her as her husband. The demands flow naturally and directly from his love, his acts of love for her. And to make this personal, guess who is seen in the Bible as both our husband and our master? We have been loved passionately by God. And we have also been bought by His blood. Which means that He has every right to make demands on our lives. We read this in the New Testament. It says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So when Jesus says to go and make disciples, that's not an option for believers. When God says we need to love our neighbors, even our enemies, He can make that demand. When God demands that we put away all bitterness, wrath, or anger, it needs to be put away. When God tells children to obey and honor our parents, He's giving a command. Making a demand. When God's word demands that we flee from sexual immorality, His people have to flee. 
When God says that we must forgive others as He forgave us, we had better forgive. When God tells us to to bridle our tongues, let no unwholesome talk come out of them, He means it. And we might think at times that His demands are unreasonable or antiquated, or offensive, or restrictive, or, or whatever. We make excuses, but, 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 no buts! Right? He is our master. He is our husband. We might think, if I follow Christ, I have to give that up? I, I can't swear, I can't mess around sexually, I can't get drunk, I can't hold a grudge? That's not fair! No, what's not fair is that we're not dead for doing these things yet. Thank God that he doesn't give us what we do deserve and gives us what we don't. His spilled blood bought the right to demand that we submit everything to his lordship. Once we're redeemed, we must dwell as His from now on. But don't lose sight of the fact that these demands flow from His love. They flow right from His love. And any obedience that we give Him in return should flow from our love as well. Take heart from what 1 John 5.3 says. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So we love Him, we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not oppressive. They're not unreasonable. His commandments are not burdensome. You may have noticed that Hosea demands that Gomer live with him for many days, but not permanently. Why is that? Shouldn't a spouse be faithful for life? Well, yes, of course. That was a given. That would have been assumed in this situation. Why Hosea says many days here is because he's making a very specific demand in this verse. He was actually demanding a temporary season of abstinence and cleansing for Gomer. Once that season was over, all aspects of their marital relationship could be renewed and resumed. I know this to be the case because of Hosea's prophecy which follows in verses 4 and 5. Hosea's loving demands paralleled how God was going to treat his people. Israel would also face a probation, as it were, for many days. But, it would be much more intense than just abstinence. It would be exile. Look with me in verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Don't miss this crazy, startling fact. It was God's love that sent his people into exile at the hands of the Assyrians. Is that crazy or what? Love led to exile. Love led them to being dragged off and displaced. 
God told Hosea, love Gomer like I love Israel. And I'm sending Israel into exile. How could love lead him to do that? Here's how. It's because the exile wasn't purposeless. It had a a very good purpose. God was going to use the exile to bring his people back to him. Here's our point from this. God's love chastens us back to him. God's love sometimes needs to chasten, or, or in more modern language, discipline us back to him. God's love chastens us back to him. Here's how he would do this as Israel. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Sometimes God's love sends us to scary places in life or painful places, confusing places. We tend to question whether or not, in those times, we tend to question whether or not God actually loves us. When not realizing that it could have been his love that put us there in the first place. God says in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. As a parent, never disciplining my children would be one of the most unloving things I could ever do. I would be steering them toward a life of uncivilized and unbridled selfishness. No, actually, the, the very reason that good parents discipline their children is because they love them. They want the very best for them. They, they want them to grow up well. And so it is with God. The things God takes away from Israel in verse 4 are a, a mixture of good, bad, or neither. There were good kings and princes and bad kings and princes, good sacrifices and evil sacrifices, pillars in the temple, pillars used in idol worship. The ephod refers to the priesthood, which was usually good, but household gods were obviously bad. It's it's probably safe to assume, though, that even the good things here had been corrupted. They'd been corrupted by idolatry. The Israelites had callously turned their backs on their Savior and spurned his ways. So as their punishment, God was going to strip away their whole way of life. However, this wasn't straight punishment for the sake of vengeance or retaliation. This was chastisement, it was a chastening, something intended to correct their ways. God didn't just want to, to hurt Israel. He wanted them to turn, to turn back to him. So he sent them to their room. No, actually, he sent them to a faraway land where they would have time to reevaluate everything. They have time to, to realize where they'd gone astray. 
to repent of what they had done and return to their first love. And if they would do this, if they ended up returning to God, all the terrible things about to happen to them would be worth it. Kinder comments, what is striking about this prophecy is that it threatens the very pillars of life as Israel knew it, and then that it interprets the withdrawal of all these cherished things, good, bad, and indifferent alike, as ultimate gain. Now, not everything that happens in our lives is disciplined. Not everything that bad that happens to us is disciplined. But some of it has to be. And this should shape the way that we view all of our experiences in life. God doesn't make you suffer because He hates you. On the contrary, He lets us suffer often precisely because He loves you. And He wants to use those seasons of life to draw you closer to Him. To draw you back. One day, Israel would finally get it. Their marriage with God could resume, as verse 5 talks about. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. A day would come when Israel would return from exile back to their homeland, and when they did, they'd be changed. They would return and seek the Lord, it says. These words really describe repentance. Turning from their sin, turning to God, seeking Him. And it says, and they would come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. In other words, they would return in deep reverence. And as they came back, God would lovingly pour His goodness out on them. All this did, in fact, come to pass in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, which you can read about in the Bible. But two hints in this verse tell me that Hosea was looking beyond just Israel's return from exile. First, it says that this would take place in the latter days, or rather at the end of the days. And we believe the last days didn't really begin until Jesus ascended back into heaven. And we've been living in them ever since. Second, it says that Israel would not only seek God, but they'd also seek David, their king. Now, David was dead. Long gone. So how would they seek David, their king? Well, this refers to them seeking David's heir, or David's Messiah, Christ, whom we, of course, believe showed up. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus claims, I am the root, comes before, and the descendant of David. And so, we see this prophecy was partially fulfilled with Israel returning into in, their land repentant. It continues be partially fulfilled whenever anyone, even today, turns and seeks the Lord. Finding their salvation in King Jesus and finding the goodness of the Lord there. And 
one day it will be completely fulfilled as every knee bows before him. So I urge you, in these latter days, we don't know how long we have left here, in these latter days, return and seek the Lord your God. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from your sin, your rebellion, and find when you turn that God is just waiting to love on you. Waiting to pour His goodness out on you. You may need to do this today for the very first time. You may need to do it for the hundredth time. But you can do it right now. Even in this moment, in your heart. You may feel that Lately, you've been being chastened by God, disciplined by Him. Or you may feel that it hasn't come to that yet, but you've definitely strayed. You can return today because of His blood that was sufficient to pay the cost. Come back in the fear of the Lord. Come rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Remember that. This passage really displays that reality for us. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All of us gomers, Keep increasing our sin. But if God, our Hosea, has redeemed us, His grace will abound all the more. Angela's going to sing a song in a moment that puts us in the shoes of Hosea's wife. Maybe helps us experience that a little bit more. So I encourage you to sit back, listen, soak that in, and then we'll close by loving the Lord together in song. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have put so many things above you in our lives. So many other people, so many other passions, so many other things that we, activities that we do. God, we come here and we confess today. We repent of our idolatry. Help us to turn from it. May we be drawn by your incredible love that you displayed on the cross to buy us back from the, the road that we were on, the destruction that we were barreling full bore toward. God, we need you. Please show us, every one of us, your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.